0: You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. What we're gonna do is we're actually gonna have two studies in one because the first portion of scripture here could actually be a single study. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna tell you in advance that the first portion of Scripture here would be something I would teach at a pastor's conference. So I'm going to speak to you in in a way as if you're ministers, as if you are pastoral ministers. Even though we're all ministers, I believe you can can receive something from this. But it's going to be something that that gives a little, little ministry insight. And then the second portion that we're going to go through is going to be related to sorcery. And so we're going to be looking into ministry, how the Holy Spirit establishes churches, and then we're going to be moving into seeing the opposition and what takes place when the enemy is trying to keep the work of the Spirit from occurring. So they're going to be two separate that actually will actually melt into one. So beginning at verse 1 here and uh, reading to verse 3, Mark, rather um, Acts chapter 13, uh, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Luke writes now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, I'm going to give you again a little background for those of you who perhaps haven't been with us uh, through the weeks here as we've been studying through um, the book of Acts. I've gotten into the habit of giving some background so that those who may be here for the first time might be able to receive some things and have a, a context for all of this. And so I'll begin by saying after Jesus' resurrection, he gave marching orders. To the church, and the orders that he gave were very simple. He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, they had orders and they had a message. It was the gospel. They were to go and they had a message. So, they had orders and they had a message, but they were lacking one thing, and the one thing they were lacking was spiritual power. You have a message and you have uh, an order, but you need help to be able to fulfill this. And so the power was supplied to them on the day of Pentecost. So they received spiritual power to preach. They also received spiritual power to perform miracles, to perform works. So the combination of preaching and works had caused the gospel to explode. And as we looked at the first few chapters of Acts, we saw that within a short time, multitudes had come to faith in Jesus Christ. But along, excuse me, along with the, uh, with the people coming to faith, came opposition. It was demonically inspired. The religious group called the Sadducees ordered the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Christ. And as we've seen, they even put them in jail because they refused to stop. And then the devil used a very old tactic. If you can't beat them, join them. And so false believers entered into the church. We saw how Ananias and Sapphira had sold property but held back part of the proceeds, claiming that they gave everything to the Lord, but in fact were lying to the Holy Spirit. And for that, they were judged for doing so. Now, after that, a flesh-motivated division occurred. The Hebrew Christians and the Hellenistic Christians had a conflict. The Hellenistic, the Greek culture, and the Greek-speaking Jewish people, the Hellenist widows were neglected. But then again, the problem was solved by the uh, bringing up of the first deacons in the church. Then Stephen became the first Christian martyr. Great persecution was intensified, and we saw how that Saul began hunting down Christians, and the persecution simply pushed the believers out of the city of Jerusalem. So we saw how they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and into the little bit to the north in a place, a region called Samaria. But as they were scattered, according to Acts 8, verse 4, they went everywhere preaching the word. So now Samaritans and even, even Gentiles are being added to the church. In spite of the opposition, according to Acts 12 24, the word of God grew and the word of God multiplied the church. It was because of persecution that the gospel had reached a city called Antioch, which is approximately 300 miles to the northwest of, uh, northeast of of, uh, Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, it says, Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So this shows us how far the gospel is now reaching. A church has been planted. Believers are strong in God's word. And what happens is Antioch sends relief to Jerusalem because there's a famine. Again, that revealed their faith because the faith was demonstrated by concern for others. This is a multicultural church. It was made up of both Jew and Gentile. And again, that reveals that there's no division allowed over culture. They're neither Jew. There's neither Gentile. But we're all one in Christ. In Ephesians 2:13 and 14, it says, "...in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And so the church is healthy. The church is thriving, even under persecution, even under infiltration, even under cultural division, the church is thriving. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pick up our study here in chapter 13 to see what's going on. Now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so, I want you to see this. I'm going to take this apart for you. I'm going to show you a few things. Again, keep in mind that ordinarily, I would be teaching this to a leadership class or I'd be speaking to pastors. I'd make it a bit different, but it's essentially very similar, almost the same. And I I hope that that this uh, ministers to all of us as we look at this. So I want to pick this up. It says that there were certain prophets and teachers. So the prophets and the teachers gave instruction and direction to the body of Christ. It seems that prophets are a separate category from the teacher's. In the book of of Ephesians, the Bible tells us in chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so you have apostles and prophets in the early church. Now, the prophets and the teachers were the ones who gave instruction. And it seems that the prophets were in a separate category from the teachers. The prophets would give revelation as well as direction. And being a prophet implied that they had a direct message that they would give from God. It was especially necessary because the New Testament had yet to been been compiled. So there was no New Testament as we know it in the early church. What they used was the Old Testament, and the prophets would speak a revelation for that moment. Sometimes they would speak concerning what is happening now, and then other times they would speak of future events. And so you have the prophets. You have one that we've already seen. His name was Agabus. He's the one in chapter 11 who had prophesied a famine that would later occur. And you see him again in chapter 21. He was one who was recognized as a prophet. Well, the teachers have a different ministry. The teachers would explain and illustrate Scripture and give the fundamentals of the Christian faith. This message from God came to the people, in other words, in a more systematic way. And that meant that the teachers would spend time searching the Word as they knew it, they would spend time in prayer, and they would would spend time in meditation and reflection, and then they would present those things to the people who are coming to hear. Now, the Bible tells us that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, it says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So pastors and teachers were the ones that God would use to ensure the continuation of Christianity because the church was intended to continue for the centuries until Christ returns for the church. And so it was intended to continue until he returned. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, the things that you have heard me say among many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be qualified to teach others as well. And so a pastor teacher, an instructor in the body of Christ is to be a model of the faith. And the gift of teaching is a gift that provokes people to learn. In Titus 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, Uh, Paul said it like this to a pastor named Titus. He said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And so the pastors, teachers are there to equip the saints. The apostles were the foundation. The prophets would declare the word of God. in a a revelation way. The pastor teacher was the one who would take what was there in the Old Testament and as it grew into the New Testament and would communicate that to the people. And so in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And now you have their names given to us, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you have a number of names. We already have been introduced to the one named Barnabas. He's the one who ministered to believers in Antioch in chapter 11. We've seen, we haven't seen the name Simeon. He's also called Niger. And this is interesting, because the word Niger is Latin for black. And so that tells us that this is in reference to his color. He was a black man. And a leader in the church He's perhaps, one commentator pointed out, a North African. You had Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in Libya, northern Africa. And then you have a guy by the name of Manny, Manan. I'd rather call him Manny. He's a foster brother of Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, you know him. He was the one who put to death John the Baptist. Manon was a man of influence. That reveals the reach of the gospel. Then you have Saul. Now Barnabas had invited him, Saul, to come and minister in Antioch. We saw that in chapter 11. We'll look at this a little deeper in a moment. Notice verse 2. It says, as he ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I want to develop this with you. I want you to notice first in verse 2. Notice how it says, as a minister to the Lord. How do you minister to the Lord? Uh, Recently, I was speaking something about blessing the Lord, and somebody asked the question, how do you bless the Lord? Isn't it the Lord who blesses you? How can you use a phrase like that, bless the Lord, when in fact, he's the one who blesses you? And that's an honest and a good question. Well, the word bless means to praise. And so you praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's, it's a manner of praise and worship. But how do you minister to the Lord? Isn't it the Lord who ministers to us? When I was first, uh, first began to uh, pastor as an ordained minister back, back in 1979, that was one of the questions that I grappled with. How do I minister to the Lord? What does that mean? Well, the word minister is an Old Testament concept. It speaks of priestly temple service. So when you see that they minister to the Lord, ministering to the Lord is speaking of worshipful service to God. So when you're serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord, it's actually a sacrificial service that brings honor and glory to Him. You see, ministry includes all Christians, not just certain gifted ones. We need to remember that all of us have been called by God. If you're born again, all of us have been called by God to minister. Every one of us, not a single one of us is excluded. We're all in spiritual warfare, and there are no conscientious objectors in a spiritual war. And so what? Hey, I heard that. And so so what we are is we're aware that we have gifts and services that we do to the Lord. There's, There's no way you want to sit the bench. I don't know how many people here used to play sports or continue to play sports or pretend that you do play sports, but I can tell you I never was the guy who wanted to sit the bench. I didn't want to put on a uniform, sit there and get my snow cone later on, I, though I did enjoy this the cherries were good, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to dirty the uniform. I wanted to do something. I wanted to play. I didn't want to sit the bench. There are a lot of Christians who love sitting the bench. They do. There's another one. And so (laughs) it's true. They kind of sit the bench. But every one of us has been called to serve the Lord in whatever category or ability you might have. He's the one who gifts you. He's the one who calls you. That's what we're looking at. And there are no special heroes in the church. We have to be careful with that one. We really have to be, because we have a tendency of lifting up people to a position they ought not to have. We are all a team, and and not one of us is more important than the other. We all serve the same God. We all receive rewards from the same God. Now, there are different positions in the body of Christ, and some have more authority. That's pastoral roles. That occurs, but the pastors know better qualitatively than anybody else and I think it's very very dangerous especially in these last days when people are looking for heroes to put that person on a pedestal because the higher you lift him up the more he's going to be tempted to fall and the further he will fall that's why you pray for that's why you lift up those who serve the Lord amongst you but there are no special heroes in the body of Christ in 1st Peter 2 4 and 5 the apostle said it like this he said as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There are no special heroes. We work together. Now that doesn't mean we don't honor faithful ministers. In first Timothy five seventeen, Paul said the elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose whose work is preaching and teaching. It means we work together to serve the same God. Now, this reveals that ministry is centered on pleasing and serving God. They were ministering to the Lord. We need to understand that. Ministry is not simply meeting people's real needs or their felt needs. Ministry to others is built on, and it flows from a relationship we have with God and our service to Him. You see, ministry is at its core the worship of God. And when true ministry occurs, God receives all the credit, and He receives all the glory. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will give to no one else, neither my praise to graven images you shall have no false gods before you so ministry is to God that's who we minister to Psalm 115 1 says not to us O Lord not to us but to your name give glory because of your mercy because of your truth not unto us but unto you may you receive all the glory and so this is what's taking place now notice in verse 2 they were fasting that speaks of a serious seeking of the Lord So fasting is normally abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. That's to reveal to us separation and intensity because they're seeking the Lord for guidance. Now, as this is taking place, notice again in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Separate. Now, it's the Holy Spirit who is guiding them. It comes through a prophetic word by the Holy Spirit, but he's giving them direction, and he says separate. Now, the word separate means to appoint. It speaks of setting apart for a purpose. So this is going to give us insight, especially to some who may be listening to this message, perhaps in this room right now, or online, or perhaps later on. This gives us a little insight into how the Holy Spirit moves to plant a church. Now, I want you to see again in verse 2, Luke says it occurred as a minister to the Lord. So, the call came during a season of worship, prayer, and fasting. It did not come through what we today call strategy sessions. It did not come through what is called today team building. It did not come through what is referred to now as vision casting. It was not uh, due to creating a team, and it, it didn't result from doing what is called, and this may be something that's unfamiliar to some, but it didn't come because somebody did what is called a demographic study. A demographic study is simply looking into areas and saying, what is the need there? Oh, I see they have a lot of this particular culture or that particular culture or this culture, and what we'll do is we're going to get a team made up of people of the same culture, and we'll send them in. That's going on a lot today. That goes on a lot today, where people say, well, it's a heavily Hispanic place, so you ought to get yourself a Mexican in there. And that's just not, that's just not, I I didn't start this fellowship a year ago. I didn't put this in my notes, but I'll say it openly as I'm thinking about it. I did not start this fellowship so we'd have a Mexican church. I wanted to see a church. I wanted to see God move amongst the people. Now, sometimes people think, oh, that's a Mexican pastor, therefore it's a Mexican church. No, I was watching the thank you, Pastor David. We only had one white guy say thank you. That was not prearranged. That's just the way it happened. But I was cracking up for a service. I saw it and I said, what's going on here? No, that's not what you do. Listen, you seek the Lord, you pray, you're intense. Father, what should we do? You don't say, look, I'm thinking of, will you come and join me? Will you come and join me? Will you come and join me? We're going to need a worship team. We're going to need children's ministry. We're going to need assistance. We're going to need a secretary. secretary could you? That's not how this church began. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit and the direction of the Spirit. And the Word of God, as it's presented, people are drawn who have those gifts and qualities. And they do that work, and that's how it works, and that's what's happening here. You see, they're not saying, well, you know, I'll open up a Bible and talk to see if somebody comes. We'll give it a shot. That's not what's going on. They were seeking the will of the Lord as they were worshiping him. And the call was given through spirit-filled, worshipful, mature Christian leaders. Now, in in the Scripture, we see that there are different... um, uh designations of spiritual maturity. You see babies in Christ, you see uh, children in Christ, you see young men in Christ, and then you see what are called fathers or fathers and mothers, but you, you see fathers, and the fathers are the elders. And in first John 2 13, John said it like this. He said, I write to you fathers Because you've known him who is from the beginning. These were men who knew the ways of the Lord. They were elders. They were mature spiritually. They were waiting on the Lord. They were in prayer. They were fasting. The Spirit spoke and directed. They knew the ways of the Lord. They walked in the Spirit. They knew the voice of the Lord when He spoke. These were men who were acquainted with the ways of God. They weren't novices. They weren't hungry just to do something. These are men who were prepared. Now, notice that the Holy Spirit said, separate to me. So there's an official recognition by trusted leadership. The body of Christ trusted these men and would trust that they were being sent out. You see, that's an official act of sending out missionaries. There are some men who go out, and there are others who are sent out. And there's a difference between the two. They were sent out. And their accountability went beyond prophets, teachers, and the congregation it was firmly planted in the relationship of the God who sent them. In Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul said it like this. He said, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, he said, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth they have a relationship with God they want to see God move they're fasting and praying seeking the Lord and the Holy Spirit spoke it wasn't some kind of planning session it was the spirit and they were separated for the work to which God called them and when it says they were separated for the work the word work is a Greek word ergon and it means the labor so ministry is work it's not a hobby and it's not a recreation. In 1 Thessalonians 5:12, it says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, labor, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. A second thing, he said, The work to which I have called them, it is God who determines the target. Now, many churches are built next to another church because they can draw people from that church. And they can grow quickly. But Paul gives us a model in Romans 15, 20, where he said, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. So God has said, I want you to go to this area and do this work there. They haven't heard my name. And that's what's taking place. Notice he says, for the work to which I have called them. Again, ministry is not a one-man show. Ministry is a team effort. Remember that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two? He went out in teams. Why? Because the work is too big for one person. If you come into here, this is different than it was 42-plus years ago now. You know, when we first started, we didn't even have children's ministry. We only had three or four kids, and they were all mine, basically, in the church, you know. And so Marie was a children's minister. She had to. She was taking care of the, our brats. We had a couple other ones, and that was about it. We needed, we needed help. You know we can do certain things ourselves, but you need you need help you know in in this fellowship here, you know where we are now you know we we have people in the parking lot, and uh sometimes they may be irritating to some people because they're saying, "Could you park here? No, I want to park over here uh, and, and okay, there's the driveway go out no they uh, <laughs> but you need them and 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 then you you walk in and you go to a children's ministry and and you've got all of these people who are caring for our children, who are ministering the word, who spent time this week praying for them and preparing. Thank God for them. You, you have uh, people standing at the door when you walk in who are saying, Hi, would you like to be seated here and all of that? You know, the ushers and all. We have that. Our worship team, our worship teams that we have, and I think that God has blessed us with our worship team. I really do. It's a beautiful worship teams. But you might be interested, most of you know, but you might be interested to know that there's only one paid staff member on that, and that's Jared. The rest are volunteers. The rest do work and other things, and they come here to worship God and lead us in worship. Aren't you grateful for that? I am. I'm grateful for those things, and that's how church works. So you may have a, a senior pastor, but you have staff that are holding my hands up and, and caring for us and, and caring for you and doing ministry and counseling and teaching and, and all of those things. I can only do one thing. I can only do a certain amount of things. And so I needed a team, and that's what they have. And that's what the church is supposed to have. The church is supposed to have people who are working together for the work of ministry, who are laboring together for the sake of Jesus Christ and for His glory And so he says, I've sent them, not just him, not just those two, but the teams that are going to go out and do the work. And so that's what happens. It symbolizes unity because they're going to work together and it also reveals to us accountability. And so it says, having fasted and prayed in verse 3, laid hands on them, symbolizing the anointing and the sending, they sent them away. So verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there, They sailed to Cyprus, and and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And so they send them out. Now, Seleucia is a port there by Antioch, and they left for Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Cyprus had a large Jewish population, and there were many Greeks there. It was also known for its... Uh, promiscuity and uh, for its religious superstition it says in verse 5 they arrived in Salamis that's where they first made salami sandwiches mark that down <laughs> very good oh, I'm sorry they arrived in Salamis and pre <laughs> I don't know where these things come from I, I, I really don't they preached the word of God now Salamis was on the eastern side of Cyprus So they're traveling through Cyprus, and they're ministering in the synagogues. Notice they had John as their assistant. John is John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, and he's assisting. We've already seen that. He is their assistant. He's a servant. He's literally what is called an under rower. So John went with them. He wanted to relieve the load of ministry. He was there for practical needs. He'd make the lodging arrangements, make sure that those things were met He would come alongside of them, perhaps even record the events as as a scribe. And so they're traveling, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed... The hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. Immediately a dark mist fell on him and when he went around and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand and the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished notice at the teaching of the Lord. Now we're going to spend a time in a second study. I mentioned to you that you actually have two parts, two different studies. This will be the second one. Now, notice verse 6. They have found a certain individual. Now, they ended up in the city. They're, They're on the island of Cyprus, and from Salamis they traveled west. They ended up in Paphos. Paphos was the seat of provincial government. It was a Greek settlement known for the cult of Aphrodite. And here they encounter a man who's called Bar-Jesus, but he's also known as Elymas. Elymas is Arabic for a wise man. Now, notice that Luke doesn't refer to him as a wise man. Luke says he's a Jewish sorcerer, and he calls him a false prophet. He's an apostate Jew. He's employed by a man named Sergius Paulus. What he is is a court magician. He interpreted dreams. And he practiced the occult. Alamis was acquainted with the word of God. But he didn't care for it, nor did he heed it. And he knew that the Bible forbids sorcery. But he disregarded it. So when I say that, somebody says, Okay, what's wrong with sorcery? Come on. What's the big deal about sorcery? Why can't you practice astrology? Why can't you go to the card reader or have your palm read? Why can't you consult psychics? Why is that wrong? Well, to attempt to discover the future on your own is to bypass God's sovereignty and ability to reveal the future. To attempt to do it yourself is demonically inspired. There are certain things that belong only to God. In Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The future is under the authority of God, and it is he who reveals it as he wills. In Daniel 2, verse 22, it says that God reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. The New Testament reveals sorcery as a work of the flesh. Now I uh I grew up in in a home that was not a Christian home. My mama was not a Christian though she had a Christian interest, you know, she she had a she had hidden her Bible. My dad didn't want the Bible in our house. So mama that's the only thing I know she did that really was in, in opposition to something, he said she had hid her Bible because she wanted to read it. But my mom didn't understand it, like many who have a Bible in the house never read it, don't really understand it. So I was raised like many of you. As I look out into this congregation, some of you may have been raised in a similar way. And I'll use an example. Um, when I was uh, a little boy, uh, I would stand by the the door of my bedroom. And I would put my hand on the light. And then I would start to run. I'd turn off the light and take two steps and jump into my bed because kukui was underneath it. (laughs) And he was going to grab me. Uh, How many of you guys know that? Did any of you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the kukui, right? I was scared, and I actually did that for a long time. I would run. I did it just the other day. I don't know why. No, I. <laughs> but I was brought up like that, you know. That's the way you keep your kid in bed, I guess. During the time my mom was raising us, you know, just tell them cuckoos there, so they won't get out of bed at night, because it's going to grab your ankles, drag you under the bed, and who knows what's going <laughs> to happen to you. See, so that was something I grew up with, a little superstition. My my mom uh, told me about the uh, the evil eye. When I, was, uh, when I was a little, little boy, I was very ill. I, actually, I was a baby. My mom said that I was an infant, less than a year old. And she said I had this terrible fever. So she went to a, a woman who was there in the apartment complex she lived in. And this woman was a, a witch. And uh, so she took an egg and rolled it all over my body so that the infection would go in the egg. And then she broke the egg in a bowl, and this blood was in it, right? And that was uh, a bruja that's my mom, believed in that. See, so I was raised with superstition. It was just part of us. You know, I didn't believe in it. Well, maybe the kukui, but not the egg, <laughs> you know. And so... That's just part of your culture. That's part of what happens. There's a lot of different uh, cultures that have similar kinds of things. Those are mythologies and superstitions. And, but they're magical and demonic, and you don't realize it. You don't realize what it is, but that's what it is. And so people say, why don't you go to somebody to read your palm or, or read your ring when I first got saved? Uh, I went to share with my my aunt about the gospel. I'd just gotten saved, but I knew enough at that point to know that uh, psychics, that's not something you get involved in, and and (laughs) so I went to the my aunt's house to share with her about Jesus and all. And there's this woman who is sitting there. Uh, I still remember. I can even see where she's sitting. She was sitting to my left there. And my, and my aunt Nadine's telling me, oh, she can read your future. Just give her your ring. And I said, no. She said, well, why not? I said, because only God knows the future. Because I had been taught that already within a very short time. God knows the future. Who are you? I'm not going to give you my ring. Anyway, you'll probably steal it. And so <laughs> So the Bible I, I, the Bible teaches, and I'm not doing a full story, uh, study on this, but that sorcery is a work of the flesh. It's a demonic attempt inspired by the enemy to know the future that only God holds in reserve for himself and determines to reveal it to whomsoever he wills. So when you go to these astrologers or you read that, little, oh, it's just, you know, I'm just reading and, and whatever. I don't really believe it. Oh, I'm a Leo or whatever. You know, when you're reading. When I met Marie... My girlfriend became my wife. The day I met her, I've told you this before. Some of you haven't heard it. I'm sitting with her talking to this girl. The first time I ever talked to her is right after a Bible study. She had come to my study. And she says to me, "Um, what's your sign? And I said, the fish. (laughs) And, And she goes, oh, you're a Pisces. And I said, no. I said, the Ichthus. I said, I don't believe in that garbage. That was our first conversation. The first conversation. God said, she needs to get saved. And I said, okay. I'll disciple her. But that was, that was so common. And the college kids, she was in college at that time. The college kids were into the sorcery, astrology, magic. We used to drop mushroom. We used to drop acid because... We thought we would, uh, it would open the portal of something spiritual for us to connect with the other. We didn't even call it God. It was the other. There's something out there, a power out there that we want to connect with, and you can do it psychically through dropping drugs. We did that. I did that as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. You're thinking you're going to connect with something greater than yourself, and you have these hallucinations thinking that you are. Sorcery. Sorcery is an act of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Works of the flesh are evident, and he gives all of these works, including sorcery. The word sorcery in the original language is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia speaks of drugs because the sorcerers would use drugs in their practices. So it's a work of the flesh, and according to Revelation 22, 14, and 15, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may and, and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So this sorcery is a sin that is, keeps you from heaven. There's a sorcerer. It's strictly forbidden. Well, Paul is speaking to Sergius Paulus, Notice verse 7 refers to him as an intelligent man. That means he has an inquiring mind. He's learned. He's intelligent. He's wise, philosophic, and he desires religious instruction. He's intellectually honest. He's open to hearing what the gospel has to say. He's not a believer, but he's fair-minded, and he's open. Well, Alamis in verse 8, withstands him. Why? Because Elymas knew that if Paulus would get saved, that Alamis would lose his influence over Paulus. Also, he's a non-practicing Jew, so he's opposed to the message that's being presented anyway. You see, some religious unsaved people get angry when you're preaching to their friends. They can discourage people from answering invitations. They can even keep them from going to church or listening when someone is sharing the gospel. Sometimes they get angry. Sometimes they interrupt church services. Sometimes they storm out. Off to my left here. Years ago, some guy stood up, flipped me off, started saying all kinds of dirty words to me, and stormed out. And I told John, if you do that again, I'm going to fire you, (laughs) because they actually do that. They do. They get upset. They storm out. Well, Alamis is doing that. He's upset. And so what happens, verses 9 and 10, Saul, who is also called Paul, this is the first time you see him called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, oh, full of all deceit and all fraud. Son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? How unloving for him to say something like that. How could he be so judgmental? How could he be so harsh? How could he be so critical? Listen, Alamos is religious. Isn't that all that matters as long as you believe in a God or some power up there? Why is he being labeled deceitful? Why is he being called wicked? Because he sought to turn the proconsul from hearing the gospel because he sought to prevent the truth from entering that man's mind so that that man could be set free. And as a result of that, he revealed himself as what would be called the son of the devil. In John 8, 43 and 44, Jesus said it like this, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, doesn't stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He's a liar and the father of it. So he says, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? You see, what happens is false prophets change the way to come to God. In Matthew seven thirteen through 15, Jesus said it like this, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're raveny, ravenous wolves. This is from the mouth of love itself. Watch out. And so, in verse 11, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he says, You shall be blind, not seeing the sun. For a time, and immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The darkness of his soul is now experienced by his physical eyes. The blindness is temporary out of grace toward him. You see, when he regains his sight, perhaps he'll come to faith in Jesus. But the proconsul, verse 12, believed when he saw what was done. The miracle worked a wonder in him. It grabbed his attention, and as a result, he was astonished at the confirmation that was given to the message of the gospel and he came to faith in Christ. How serious is God for us to come to faith in him? We see in this passage here he is intensely serious that we come to faith in him. We all have a darkness within us without Christ, but when we come to Christ then the light shines upon us and from us because the Holy Spirit uses us for his work. And so we see here way you plant a church, but we also see here a warning at those who would try to stop the work of God. All we need to do is ask ourselves, what side of this do we land on? If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.